This is an ABC podcast. I wish I knew Hi, and welcome to RN Summer on the History Listen. To be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. It was the 1970s, a try anything decade. Women's liberation, gay liberation, free love, sisterhood is powerful. And for some women, a time to reinvent the world their way. No men, no meat, no machines. That was it. I'd say it was to do with men. Men meet machines. There are the M's. For one group of rebels, their way to reinvent the world was to buy a mountaintop and build their own paradise. Women only, Eve's, no Adam's. The idealism and the utopia, it's as good as it gets. And especially a 1,000 acres and especially 10 kilometres from the nearest neighbour. That sense of security and safety and free from the male gaze, it was incredibly liberating. And no need for fig leaves. One of the things I do remember about living there was just walking around without any clothes on, except for gumboots. That was basically the... We did many things by moonlight. We walked through incredible amounts of bush just by moonlight. It was so beautiful. I'm Rebecca Huntley and this is The History Listen. In the late 1970s, this very unusual community set up camp in a remote spot in northern New South Wales. It was a bold experiment in freedom at a time when most women still lived restricted lives. But how did the reality live up to the dream out there in the bush? 45 years later, Fenella Souter went to find out. This is the story of Amazon Acres. It all began with a small, matter-of-fact notice in the Women's Liberation Newsletter of January 1974, posted by a woman called Karen Higgs. Amazon Acres is a 1,000 acres of red fertile earth. It has permanent water rising in natural springs and two of the creeks have beautiful waterfalls. What we want to do is have a women's farm, a place where women can go to get stronger as a break from the struggle with male culture. The farm is open to all women and no men. That is all women who want to live Especially there. in the age of the Me Too movement, I can see the appeal of a community with no dangerous men or harassers, no one telling women what to do, a feminist hideaway in tune with Mother Nature, drenching rain, leeches, rainbows. Brave, if maybe a little crazy. Karen Higgs still remembers the day she first discovered the mountaintop, rattling up there in her VW Beetle. She fell in love with the place and the possibility of a new way of living. You could see magnificent views, magnificent views of the river valleys and far off into the northern mountains and... You know, and then I sort of ran all over, all over. I think I actually ran that afternoon all over the place. It was a, a moment of high excitement, really. How did you know this is it, this is the place? Well, I'd been looking for a place at the end of the road, you know, I'd looking for a place that was remote. And for me, that had more to do with my concept that... Western civilization would crumble. Now, I was terribly, uh, terribly wrong about how soon that was going to happen, but um, it may still happen, but I, I wanted somewhere that was um, relatively safe. So had you planned, had, you, had your vision 
been of it being a farm, a working farm? Yeah, well, yes. You would establish a self-sufficient enterprise. Uh, and what happened? Well, there was only a handful of us who wanted to do that. <laughs> and in time, that would prove a problem. But in those heady early days, Karen and the others raised the money to buy the mountaintop, some cleared land, a lot of bush and two old loggers' huts. Word got round and women started to arrive, full of hope. We were a mixture of academic and practical and pretty resilient women, women who were prepared to be the vanguard of the women's liberation movement. Sisterhood is powerful. We lived it. The fun and the opportunity and adventure, it was a, it was a girl's own adventure. Sand Hall, who first came to the lands in 1978, then a fresh-faced New Zealander, aged 21. Barbara Block was a regular visitor in her early 20s. It was a bit like boarding school. Because <laughs> I did go to boarding school and I just loved being with the girls. <laughs> and, um, Amazon Acres was a kind of more complex version of that, in a way. Um, and so it was all kind of new and I had become a lesbian. And so, obviously, you know, being with... I mean, not all the women were lesbians, but probably most of them were at that time. And so it was, um, it was exciting. For Mei Ling, it was a lifesaver. I'd had a dysfunctional childhood which led to a um, very difficult life in my 20s when I actually succumbed to a lot of drug addiction and drinking. And I was a bit of a mess, really. And I'd been to, into jail, hospitals, rehab and nothing worked, and I was met in Darwin by a woman called Trish Crick and another woman called Aquila, and they'd had a history on the mountain, and they sort of said to me, go, go to the mountain. It's a women's farm, it's an isolated place, it's very beautiful. And what did you find? Well, when I got there, I didn't really take much note of anything because I was so sick. I was very, very skinny. I was, I was very depleted and spiritually, emotionally. And I couldn't do anything except lie in a tent for a few months, being withdrawing from drugs. And uh, when I finally woke up and started to look around, I thought I was in paradise. It was so beautiful. And the women who were there at the time were very welcoming. They didn't put out the mat, but they put up a tent for me. They got me a foam mattress and uh, they helped me in any, many, many ways until I slowly got onto my feet. There's no one here on the day I visit with Karen. The mountain is just that, mostly mountain and silence, with a few of the women's handmade huts tucked away in corners of the bush. It's beautiful, but I'm struck by just how basic it is. It can't have been easy living here. How did you feed yourselves when you first came up here? Trips to town, really. You could go and you could get a big box of raisins and a, a can of honey. You'd be surprised how fast a group of women can go through a can of honey, a four-gallon drum of honey. Um, but then on top of that, we were also um, establishing vegetable gardens. We had no electricity or we didn't have a fridge or anything, so there was... Um, so the way we entertained ourselves was by playing cards or singing. Suzanne Hollis lived here in her early 20s. There was... If you wanted a cup of tea, and we drink, did drink endless cups of tea, and we would you know, go to the creek, fill up a bucket, boil a billy, and it was, it was actually really joyful. So the whole lifestyle was governed by 
just living. And because there was no shelter, I spent most of my three months of the year drying out my bedding because I lived under a tarpaulin. But because we were so young and so strong and it was just environmentally so beautiful, it was, it was almost a romantic thing to do. So, you know, if you went to town for food and there was a group here, you would come back with not just a bag of apples but a box of apples or, um, you know, a kilogram of cheese or, you know, anyway... These things used to just disappear in hours and then you were back to lentils and rice again. Panic eating, we called it. It was called panic eating. <laughs> there seemed to be very little self-discipline in that beginning time. Very little, oh, well, I've had my apple now for today. I'll... <laughs> None of that. <laughs> then there was the music. All the women I spoke to mentioned the magic of making music on the mountain. And on the starry, warm nights, we'd gravitate out to the, round the fireplace. And there's something really miraculously beautiful singing under a starry sky with all these young voices. And the songs that we sang, one song in particular, the Ishtar song. Oh, I won't sing it for you. Um, part of the chorus goes... So I'm going back to the trees for a little while and let the wind blow into my eyes and the rain going under my skin. But anyway, it's sung much better with an entire group and guitars. I was wandering in the bush and I was think I was not mindful of where I was going. I, my mind was elsewhere. And before I knew it, I had stood on and been bitten by a tiger snake. Did I mention the downsides to living in paradise? When Sand Hall was bitten that day, it brought home just how isolated the women were. With the tiger snake's venom pumping through her, Sand had to walk 20 minutes to Karen's hut. On that day, Karen was the only other person on the mountain. She used her satellite phone to call an ambulance. But first, they had to get down the mountain. So Karen said, come on, let's go. And I just wanted to lie down. I just wanted to lie down in a mattress in the back of her ute. She said, no, I want you in the front so I can keep an eye on you. Because I was starting to lose the ability to see and speak. So we were going down the mountain and she was leaving the gates open, so I knew that it was really serious. She was onto it. At the bottom, we met up with the ambulance, and I came to enough to realise I was being helped out of the car and, and onto a stretcher and, and in the ambulance. What did it mean to you? I mean, you can see that there's all sorts of obvious metaphors about snakes in paradise and so on. What, what, what did that experience, did it change the way you felt about the mountain? In some ways, I suppose, it was sort of like a, a spiritual experience. I had the sense of yes to life and no to death. And I have always, part of why I love the mountain so much was, I don't know, there's a, whether it's a connection to nature or whether that's 
it's that sort of pagan thing. It's the closest to any sort of goddess or, or religion that I've experienced. And there you have it. For some of the women, like Sand, being on the mountain, communing with nature in a female space, was the whole point. Others wanted to build stuff to get things done. You could say there were the sarong wearers and there were the log carriers. That wasn't the only division that arose between this motley group of women as they attempted to forge a new and female-shaped society. But there were lots of arguments about no meat and no men and no machines. machines. There was men, machine and meat, and that was the major... No men, uh, no meat, no machines. That was it. Men, meat, machines, there were the M's. The issues that kept coming up that I remember were uh, to do with men, money, meat, machinery, madness and sex, essentially. Just a few things then. Let's start with sex. You've got a group of women there, mostly lesbian women, young, beautiful, running around naked. Was it very sexually charged? I'd say for most of the time it was highly sexually charged. There was uh, many relationships going on. Uh, It was easy to break up with your girlfriend and go off with somebody else. Uh, It was a very romantic place to be. And the sexual energy in itself is a remarkable energy. It actually helped us get things done. It gives a lot of energy to other areas that are not necessarily sexual. But it did, uh, it also caused a lot of fights. How did people result, you know, if you broke up with someone, it's not like you could go away and not be with them, you were still there. Um, I can only speak for myself. I was on with this wonderful woman called Aquila and one night another woman called Zoe came to my side around the campfire and I went back to her camp for that night and I never went back to Aquila's camp. And Aquila was so angry, she ran off down to the valley and wouldn't talk to me for months. But it was... I was very insensitive. I would never do anything like that ever again. But I'm just giving you an example of how careless we were. We were in and each other's sleeping bags often. There's no privacy. Like, everyone just slept in. Like when we first went there for the first few years, if you, you could camp, but if you didn't camp, there was a big hut and a little hut. And they were, each hut was just one room. So everyone slept together. <laughs> hard to imagine now (laughs) but we did and yeah so there was all sorts of sexual tensions and all of that that I guess I kind of was part of. (laughs) You mean like jealousies was was monogamy a thing or was that seen as a patriarchal construct? (laughs) Well yes probably at the time it was but actually not being monogamous is quite difficult. (laughs) and emotionally fraught and so that was a bit of a contradiction I I never found it very easy to be honest. We experimented we explored we tried our best to um, put the theory of freedom and liberation into practice and it, it, it didn't do away with jealousies and issues by any means but it gave us the space the time and the space to process Then there was the debate about using machines, or even nails. What was wrong with those things? One-time resident, Lorene Kelly. Um, Yes, people didn't like chainsaws, didn't like machines, didn't like wire, didn't like anything that um, progressed you to making a sort of a self-sufficient sort of more farm type of um, environment, yeah. Why didn't they want those things? Because they were made by men. 
They were men things. They were male. They were very male. The chainsaws are very male. Haven't you noticed how male they are? It's quite useful, though. Bloody useful, I can assure you. <laughs> bloody useful. We were using, um, even to get out fence posts, we were using sledgehammers and wedges. Uh, it was going back to the Iron Age for me, really, because I'd been used to driving tractors and using machinery. And so we used to brush hook the bracken, um, pick up the burr, you know, like ho, ho, ho with the burr. So to me it was like all I wanted was a tractor. That, and no electricity or spare cash, might explain why there's only one large building on the mountain. Karen showed me inside the communal big hex, called that because it's a hexagon. It's a tall timber building full of comfy old sofas and shelf loads of teapots and built the hard way. A triumph of ideology over convenience, you might say. So the first section, this part of it you see here, this first section, was built entirely without power tools. So here you've got poles that are about nine inches and the beams are six by twos and eight by twos. They are really chunky and all of them were drilled with brace and bit or a hand drill or for the poles we used uh, something called an auger which is a great long thing with a corkscrew on the end that you actually had to turn around manually. Also it was great, I mean it was great, it was, and we, even though it was slow, laborious progress, we did, as you can see, I mean so it is 45 years later, but it's quite nice isn't it? Yeah, it's, the, lovely. Um, it's a lovely, beautiful building and this radiating beams and the central post here and the mud bricks, and, you know, the couch, the sofas, and it looks very female. Because <laughs> it looks very That was the intention. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was the intention. Well, if you look at the photos in Sands' book, I mean, you probably wouldn't find many carpenter areas where you'd find the whole crew in naked. <laughs> I said to some, how long did it take you to realise it's probably safer to put your shoes on or wear something while you're building? But there seemed to be more an emphasis on, you know, being naked. But out of the three M's, men, meat, machines, the biggest source of tension, the really big one, was the matter of men. Even when they weren't there, they caused trouble. Debates raged over just how separatist the community should be. Could men visit? What to do with boy children? what to do with men in the world generally. As Lorraine Kelly recalls, there were some extreme views. When I came back from Europe, I was a raging separatist, except for my brothers and my father and my cousins and my uncle. And my <laughs> but I must remember at the time when one woman who was very, very, um, uh, what do you call that, oh, strident, she said, you know, we've got, you know, we've got to kill all the men. That's sort of the next part of the revolution is to kill all the men. And I said, oh, there's no way in the world I could kill my brothers or father and blah, blah. And they said, don't worry, someone else will. You can just kill someone else's brother and father. <laughs> I've never thought of it like that. Yeah, I never thought of it. I had to do it myself. But anyway, um, I um, believed that men should be able to visit and that but they couldn't live or ever be part of the... Um, cooperative uh, board or anything like that. What yeah. would have happened if they had been? Well, they would have taken over, as they do everywhere. Mm. They would have caused conflict between women. You know, men cause conflict between women. I didn't want men to come to the place. I saw it very much exclusively a women's place. It was my understanding that prepubescent boys were allowed there and I was fine with that. 
But um, I liked it that there was no men, that we had control over our own environment and we made decisions for ourselves. Did any boys ever have to be asked to leave or any women with boy children? Oh, we did have one torrid event. A woman brought her four-year-old son up for dinner and my lentil patties got thrown around the hut from one end of the hut to the other when there was an angry outburst to ask this child to leave. He was a four-year-old boy at the time and he did leave. But, yes, there were some who wanted no boys and, and many who didn't mind boys there at all. How did you feel about it? I was very... I, I didn't mind the boy being there, but I was more upset that there was no respect for my cooking. In those times, it was inevitable that there would be women who were separatists or who were completely traumatised on the mountain for whom men's presence was distressing, it was quite difficult. You know, men are part of the world and you might want to... You do want a safe place that is for women and so how do you resolve that tension? It's just really difficult. We were young and so feelings ran high and it was quite hard to kind of have any nuanced discussion about those matters. What was your position on men or boys on the land? I love the women's space. It changes an environment when there are men. It just changes it. In order to find out who I was, separate from heterosexism and patriarchy and, and all of that, to separate physically, you just got to a whole other sense of yourself and what you were capable of and what the freedom was and how to live it. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. It was such a vexed issue that eventually two other women's lands were set up nearby by more hardline or more hippie breakaway groups. Spreading over another 3,000 acres or 1,200 hectares, those lands were called the Valley and her land. But there's an exception to every rule, and one man was a trusted friend to the mountain dwellers. He's no longer alive, but Karen showed me his tumble-down hut, which holds so many warm memories for her. Um, the wonderful Arthur Coombs. He was an older man who still worked at the ply mill. He brought anyone who was stranded in the rain or arrived on the train and hitchhiked out. He get him in the Land Rover and bring him up the mountain. He taught me how to fell trees. He, he drank too much. He was a horrendous drinker, but he was, uh, I don't know, a deeply compassionate, genuine man. He was wonderful. Yes, yeah, so Arthur Coombs lived on his own. He, I think he'd had a bit of a sad life. I believe he was jilted by somebody, never, so he never married. But for whatever reasons, I don't understand, he loved us, sort of collectively. If it was late, if we arrived late and it was too dark and couldn't really go up at, at night, he would, we would just sleep on the floor at his house. And, you know, there was no kind of innuendos of no, you know, sexual anything. I assume he knew most of us were dykes. I don't actually know what he knew. It was never really, you know, articulated. But um, it didn't kind of matter. Oh, well, he was a silly old goat with women. 
you know, he was weak where they were concerned, I think, you know, to try and help them. And, but as I said, one or two were all right with him too, but some of them, you know, weren't. That was local woman June Coombs, now a spry 92-year-old and Arthur's sister-in-law. She and her late husband Bill, who lived on a property below, felt the women took advantage of Arthur's goodwill. I said you'd clean up for Arthur and go up there and there'd be mouldy tea in the teapot, you know, and where they'd never emptied the different things like. I one even had a caravan out there on the brother-in-law's place and uh, chooks and goodness knows what. <laughs> it wasn't just the women who sought out Arthur. The kids of Amazon Acres also visited, particularly when they were hungry. We would sometimes just go, oh, let's walk down to Arthur's, and we would walk down the mountain 12Ks, and we'd sit at Arthur's and drink cups of tea and eat his mandarins. Amber Jackson, who lived at Amazon Acres from the ages of 7 to 14. She was one of a small group of girl children whose mothers had made the mountain and the valley their home. It was a pretty freewheeling childhood, according to Mei Ling, I wouldn't say they had an easy time. They had the run of the place, but they weren't always fed properly. Their caregivers were not always attentive. They didn't get the schooling that they should have got, but they had an enormous amount of freedom. Part of that freedom meant an eccentric education. It went through spurts. I always like laugh about it now because whoever was teaching us, you got taught whatever they were really heavily into. So it might be acrobatics or it might be the woman's anatomy or something like that or it might be, like, political stuff. It was sporadic. And when they did go to school, turning up late on horseback, the kids from Amazon Acres didn't exactly fit in. There was a lot of um, teasing and... Us girls have looked at photos of us when we thought, you know, we were blending in because we were wearing a dress or something like that and it's just, you know, a dress that's all dirty and, like, pants underneath and a crew cut, just very, very different. They went to school down when we had the school down here and uh, I tried to teach them sewing but they didn't want to learn. Wasn't very cooperative with me at all. But uh, Mrs Kennedy decided she'd send them to school, see, down here. Well, they had no knickers, did they, to go to school? (laughs) All these stories used to whirl around the town and stories that, you know, if men went up there, they would get their dicks chopped off or that women would meet you at the top gate with shotguns and they'd all be, like, bare-breasted and tie you up. It was kind of hard going into town or getting to know anyone because we stood out like sore thumbs. You have to remember this was a conservative church-going area where lots of the families had lived for generations. So there was a dead wallaby left in our mailbox dressed in a frock. Like we had big mailboxes on the old milk stands. There was another occasion when they, yes, there was another occasion when they rode up on horses, about five of them, and they rode up in front of the big hut and they circled around with their horses, you know, and that was really like a deliverance group. You know, it's just like a vigilante group. And things were about to get a whole lot worse. Join us next time when Amazon Acres and the local community have to find a way to live together in part two, Sisterhood Under Siege. 
And if you're keen to hear what happened next, look for Sisterhood Under Siege on the History Listen website or via the ABC Listen app. Girls' Own Adventure was produced by Fenella Suter and Kathy Gollan. The sound engineer was John Jacobs and the supervising producer was Claudia Taranto. I'm Rebecca Huntley and do join me next week for another great summer history story. Continuing our theme of home, we go further back in time to post-war Australia and the discovery of a very special cookbook. Look forward to your company then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.